So I invite you to take your Bibles for our sermon text this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. When we continue our series on repentance, we come this morning to Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. This is God's holy word for us today. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's holy word for us today. Pray with me. Teach us your word now, O God. Give each of us eyes to see and ears to hear. And write your truth upon our hearts. Empower now, we pray, the preaching of your word, that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we come to... The next sermon in our series on repentance. And as you know, we the first three sermons, we looked at the three benefits of repentance. And we saw that repentance is healing, repentance is cleansing, and repentance is canceling. It heals our hearts and minds and lives and relationships. It cleanses our bad record of lawlessness, and it cleanses our bad hearts of corruption. And it cancels the condemnation of our sin. It cancels the eternal consequences of our sin. When we repent and God forgives, he gives us these tremendous benefits. We looked at those through the first three weeks. And then we began looking at the three requirements of repentance. And last week we saw the first requirement of repentance. That repentance is from the heart. Repentance is from the heart. Repentance that is only surface level isn't authentic repentance. And this morning we come to the second of the three requirements of repentance. And it's this. Repentance is life changing. Repentance is life changing. This requirement follows directly from the one we looked at last week. If your repentance is truly from the heart, then you will begin to exhibit a changed life. When you meet the master, your life cannot stay the same. When you meet with the Lord, something has to go, something has to give. 
and it's your sin, and it's your commitment to following a life of sin, you get a changed life. If your repentance does not lead you progressively into a changed life, then your heart wasn't really in it. No matter how sincere your initial intentions or how vivid your past experience. When you begin to follow Jesus, your life will look noticeably different. And this is what we're going to look at today. In our passage this morning, we are going to learn from the prophet Isaiah what life-changing repentance means. To help us understand what life-changing repentance does mean, let's look first at what it does not mean. Repentance that is life-changing does not mean simply becoming religious. How often do we imagine that turning from sin in repentance and becoming a follower of Jesus just simply equates to embracing a bunch of stuffy old religious observances? In our evangelism, this will frequently be the attitude that you encounter. You want me to get saved? You want me to believe in Jesus? Don't you just mean you want me to go sit through a boring church service and some old musty building with people who don't probably don't like me and that I don't want to have anything to do with anyways? Don't you just mean to start, you know, you know, start mumbling a bunch of useless prayers and singing these old hymns and just isn't that just what you mean? Like get saved just means get stuffy and uptight and religious and no thanks, man. How often have you thought that? How often have you encountered somebody that you're trying to share Christ with or just talk about your faith, and that's what they think you're saying? Just get religious. Pick up this crutch that you feel like you need because of some unmet need or some guilt or something that you're trying to prop yourself up with. Not for me. Now listen, while it's no doubt true that Christians devoutly devoutly observe a whole host of religious practices, we must emphasize that the call to repentance is not a call to get religious. Rather, the call to repentance is a call to righteousness. A call to righteousness. It is entirely possible, Christian. Indeed, it is all too easy to have an outwardly religious life that is devoid of authentic righteousness. To be outwardly religious and have no relationship with the master. This is true, and Jesus told us it's true in the Sermon on the Mount. When many on that day of judgment will stand before him and call him Lord over and over again. Lord, Lord, didn't we do X, Y, and Z in your name? Where's my reward? Didn't I cast out demons and teach and pray and prophesy? Didn't I do all the the religious stuff? I tithed every week. Do you know how much I hated that? And I did it anyway, and I did it for you, Lord. You know how much I hated being a deacon? Do you know how aggravating it is to be a trustee? 
participating in all those ministries, cooking meals and feeding people and ugh, you know. But I did it. Come on, Jesus. I'm a Christian. You know me. <laughs> I was there every time the doors were open. Come on now. It's so easy to have the outward form of religion and not have the power to be very squeaky clean and upright and moral and decent and go to church and go through those motions and check those boxes and pray before a meal every time or almost every time and whatever else it is we do that we think makes us religious. It's so easy to be outwardly religious in those ways but to not have an authentic experience with Jesus, to have no vital living relationship with the Savior, and to not have a life of righteousness where you're actually walking with the Lord. Getting religious isn't the same thing as walking with Jesus. If you're walking with Jesus, this other religious stuff might come with it. In fact, normally it does. But that outward stuff is no guarantee that you got the authentic Repentance and righteousness on the inside. And this is the first point that Isaiah makes in our passage. In the context, Isaiah excoriates the Israelites for their great religiosity without any detectable righteousness. And he says this in the previous verses, in verses 12 through 15. Just notice how God, through the prophet, just rips into these these people, to Israel as a nation. He says, when you come and appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? In verse 12. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations or worship services. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I, God says, I cannot keep doing this where you come and do all the religious stuff in church and go home unchanged and uninterested in walking with me in actual obedience. I'm sick of it. He says, bring no more vain offerings. Don't offer anything else to me. Don't, don't call another church service. I cannot endure, I cannot put up with iniquity, sin, evil, and solemn assembly. Coming to church with hearts that have no interest in walking with the Lord. He says, I've, I've just about had enough, guys. He says in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, which are in the law of Moses, the stuff that God tells them to do, these new moon observances and these festivals and feasts are occasions of worship. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, in verse 14, my soul hates they have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, that's how the ancient Israelite would pray. We bow our heads, fold our hands, that kind of stuff. We close our eyes. In the Old Testament, that's not how you prayed. You prayed with head up, eyes open, hands spread. And you prayed like this. We bow our heads because we're very reverent. They, they lifted their eyes in ex expectation and hands open. When they prayed. And it says when you spread out your hands. In prayer. And in worship. I will hide my eyes from you. 
Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wow. God is saying that when you open up your hands and look to me, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to block it out. I don't see it. I'm, I'm just going to ignore it. And when, you, and when you pray to me, no matter how many prayers, fingers in my ears, I'm not listening to these prayers anymore. He's just not interested, according to Isaiah. He's not interested in religion without righteousness. He's not interested in a religious observance without repentance and without an ongoing relationship of, of trust and obedience. And you know what? That's not just Old Testament. Oh, that's Isaiah. That's the Old Testament. I want to see it in the red letters. Where did Jesus say this? I'm a Christian. I don't follow Isaiah. I follow Jesus, okay? So show me where Jesus said this. All right, challenge accepted. Jesus taught the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 23 to 24, Jesus teaches, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. If you're about to, to make your offering at the altar, he says, and you remember, oh man, I have sinned against somebody and I've not reconciled with them. Somebody has something against me. There's unrepentant sin in my life and a lack of reconciliation. He says, you need to just leave your, leave your offering there. Go find your person that you've sinned against. Ask for forgiveness. Be reconciled and then come back and worship. In other words, get the priorities right. Repentance leading to righteousness should be your top priority, not being religious. If you had to choose on a Sunday morning between coming to church and seeking forgiveness from somebody you've wronged, pick the forgiveness one and come to church late. Or just come back next week. That's what Jesus is saying. If you had to pick between church and reconciliation with somebody you've sinned against, pick repentance and reconciliation over harboring unrepentance and lack of forgiveness, but showing up with your hands up and a smile on your face and really singing the hymns. Don't pick religious stuff over heart stuff. Pick repentance over religion if you have to choose. Don't force yourself into that choice, though. Let's hold on to both. Let's keep short accounts of sin where we seek to get forgiven and give forgiveness and reconcile and repent. And let's make it to church on time. <laughs> That's the ideal. But Jesus is saying if it push comes to shove, don't pick religion over repentance. Pick repentance. Pick reconciliation. Okay? The righteousness that God requires is the changed life that results from repentance. This is verses 16 and 17. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Seek to do, cease to do evil, learn to do good, etc. Now notice what he said. He says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. What is he saying? God, God tells us, Clean up your lives. Mend your living. 
Rinse and rid yourself of your old ways of unclean, unrighteous living. When he says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, the next line tells you what he means. Whenever you wash something and you clean something, you get stains out of stuff. You wipe something away. And what's the thing he wants you to wash and wipe away? He says, remove the evil out of your deeds. Remove the evil out of your deeds from before my eyes. Expunge the sin from your life. Remove the evil of your deeds and cease to do evil. And in place of the evil in our deeds, he says we should cultivate righteousness in our deeds. We should cultivate a changed life. That's what the next line says. He says, the first thing in verse 17, learn to do good. I'm so glad he didn't say, cold turkey, stop doing evil, and cold turkey, start doing good. He said, no, 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 cease to do evil and then learn to do good. I think of ceasing to do evil not as slamming on the brakes, but coming to a gentle, complete stop. Because we can't just flip a switch and not be sinners anymore. Ta-da! We can't do it. I'm a rotten sinner. Now I'm a pretty saint. We can't microwave it. We don't have a popcorn setting on sanctification. You can quote me. You can quote me on Twitter with that one. That's a good one. We don't have a popcorn setting on sanctification. That's not in my notes. That's from the Holy Spirit. We, I, I've said this before, that sanctification is more like, you know, the, the eight-hour setting on the crock pot than it is the popcorn button on the microwave. It's this lifelong process of ceasing to do evil, declining in our sinfulness, and inclining towards more and more righteousness. We're learning to do good, step by step, and verse by verse and week after week and worship service after worship service and experience after experience and life event after life event, we're learning to do good. So he's not saying here, be perfect. He's saying, cease to do the evil, start putting away the evil, rinse that out, and then start cultivating this life of righteousness, this day by day, step by step, walking down the narrow way. And walk with me and begin to learn, to grow, to do righteousness. Begin to cultivate a changed life. Learn to be brand new. Repentance always leads to this process. When you've repented from the heart, the life can't stay the same. Because you're going to start ceasing to do the evil and learning to do the good. You might be stumbling, but you're going to stumble uphill. Because you're heading towards righteousness. Now last week I made the point that the imperatives are always grounded in the indicatives. We did a a slight, a short grammar lesson last week. The imperatives are always grounded in the indicatives. In other words, God's commands are always based on his promises. An imperative is a command, an indicative is a statement of fact. And so God's commands are always 
based on and grounded in his promises, his statement of fact, his statements of gospel reality. God always motivates his commands for our repentance and righteousness, the imperatives, with his gospel promises, the indicatives. Isaiah understands this basic fact of God's dealings with sinners like you and me. And I call it gospel logic. Gospel logic. Isaiah shows us an excellent specimen of gospel logic in this passage. When we hear the command in verse 16 to wash ourselves and to cleanse ourselves, we may be tempted to despair. How can I wash and cleanse myself? How can I obey this requirement of repentance? How can I make myself new and different? How do I do that? I don't, how, where do I find the resources to do such a thing? And Isaiah anticipates this worry by inviting us to do a little gospel logic in verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together. There's the logic, the reasoning process. Come now, let us reason together, you and I, says the Lord. Let us reason together. Let us engage together in gospel logic. And it goes like this. It has three parts to it. Promise, condition, results. Gospel logic. Promise, premise one. Condition, premise two. Results, conclusion. It's a simple three-step logic. Promise, condition, results. And crucially, it begins with promise. Look at verse 18. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's what we're trying to wash. Something that has, something that has been stained Red like scarlet and red like crimson. Something deeply stained. Your beautiful white piece of clothing has been stained red. How do you fix it? How do you get it white again? Now maybe we can figure that out with bleach or something today. In the ancient world, you're done. It's stained, it's over. No Clorox for this. You're done. It's stained, it's over. And what does God promise? He says, let's come reason together and I'll be the one to do the washing. I'll be the one to do the cleansing. I know how to get that stain out. I know how to get that stain out. You see, in the condition, I'm sorry, in the promise, step one of gospel logic, in this promise, God promises to wash us and cleanse us from all sin. He promises to do for us what he requires of us. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Hold on. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet and like crimson, they shall be white as snow, white like wool. We don't do that. He does that. He has this condition. Wash yourself, cleanse yourself. But then he promises to meet the condition 
by grace for us. He takes away the stains of sin and he removes the evil from our deeds. God promises promises us, in other words, he promises to make us good as new. Good as new. Good as new in the sense that he restores us to purity and innocence in his sight. And good as new in the sense that he makes us new and good. He's not just going to forgive us and remove the stains like we talked about a couple weeks ago. Repentance is cleansing. He's not just going to do that. He's also going to transform us and make us actually good and new. He's going to do both. Because in verse 16, washing yourself and cleansing yourself meant removing the evil from your deeds. So that's what God's going to do. He's going to remove the sin and he's going to get the evil out of our deeds. He's going to remove that stain from the fabric of our lives. He forgives us and he transforms us. This is the first premise in gospel logic. God promises to do for us what he requires from us. And God's promise is the first God's promise is the first principle of gospel logic and the second premise is the condition. Promise condition result. Premise 1, promise. Premise 2, condition. The condition is our response to the promise. All right, Christian, you've heard the promise. What do you do with it? How do you respond? We can either respond positively or negatively. We can repent or we can refuse to repent and continue in our unclean, unrighteous state. The conditions are stated in verses 19 and 20. Last two verses of our text. Isaiah says, if you are, if, 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 that's the condition, if, if X, then Y, if X, you are willing and obedient, then Y, you shall eat the good of the land. Second condition, but if, if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Willing and obedient, you eat the good of the land, unwilling, You get eaten by the sword of judgment, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you are willing and obedient, if you have faith and repentance, if you refuse and rebel, if you have unbelief and unrepentance, there's the conditions. If you're willing and obedient, willing is having faith. If you're obedient, that comes from repentance. Or if you refuse and rebel, unbelief and unrepentance. Those are the conditions. And what are the results? The conclusion follows inevitably. By the strict rules of logic, the conclusion follows from these two premises based on your response. If you're willing and obedient, then you shall eat the good of the land. You will inherit the promises of God. That is salvation. But if you refuse and rebel, then you shall be eaten by the sword. And that's coming under the judgment that falls upon those who are unbelieving and unrepentant. 
Here is what this gospel logic entails. This is what gospel logic entails. Faith works. Faith works. I don't mean faith is this pragmatic thing that you can use to get what your heart really wants or something like that. I mean faith is active. Faith is effective. Faith brings results in your life. Because biblical saving faith is not just something that you intellectually nod your head to. Yes, that's true. Or no, that's not true. It's not just a fact you have in your head. Faith, biblical faith, is a living, breathing, vital, vibrant, active, hungry, moving activity of the soul. Resting on Christ and running in the ways of Christ. If it's alive, it's going to be active. That's the point. If faith brings results in your life, if you are saved, if you're willing and obedient, if you are saved, it is only because you've repented of your sin and put your faith in God's promise to wash you clean and transform you, to make you good as new. And if you are being transformed by God who always keeps his promises, that means you are ceasing to do evil and learning to do good. It means you are growing in righteousness, not religion. It means you have a changed life. Faith and works always, always, always go together. Living faith, not dead faith, living faith and works, obedience, righteousness, a relationship with Christ, an ongoing life of sanctification, of growing in grace and growing in holiness, etc. Those two things always go together and you can't separate them. They can no more be separated. Faith and works can no more be separated than light and heat can be separated from a flame. If you look at a candle and there's no light and there's no heat, you know one thing's for sure, there's no flame. If there's a flame, it's going to have light and heat. Because that's what a flame is by nature. It has, it has light and heat. And faith, by nature, if it's alive, if it's the real deal, it's going to have trust and obedience. It comes with both. Like a flame comes with light and heat. It's the very nature of faith to trust and obey. And James chapter 2 says a disobedient faith is a dead faith. Faith without works is dead. Or as I like to translate it, uh, he says the body without the, body without the spirit is dead. As an as a image of faith without works being dead. And I like to translate it as a body without breath is a corpse. Faith without works is just lifeless. It's a dead religious shell. This gospel logic cannot be broken. If you have truly repented, Christian, you will have a changed life. Repentance is always life-changing. And anything less is not true repentance. So examine yourselves today. Are you living for Christ? Is there a flame of faith? with trust and obedience. Examine yourself. Look beneath the religious outward activity, which isn't bad in itself, 
Look below the surface and look at your heart and ask yourself, is there living faith in Christ? Have I repented? Do I trust and obey? Am I seeking to cease from doing evil and to learn to do good? Am I on the road? Am I in process? Am I on the way? Not perfect. Not did I not sin today. Are you on the way? If you're stumbling, are you stumbling uphill? Are you living with Christ and for Christ? And today, if you are sitting here and you say, I want to be new, but I know I'm not. I want to be like this, but I know I'm not. But it's my heart's desire. If you desire a changed life, if you desire the real deal, then follow the gospel logic. Do not begin with works. Don't go jump on the treadmill of good works and try to do it yourself with just pushing yourself with more and more moral effort. You know what you do on a treadmill? You just run in place. You never get anywhere. And if you start with works, you've inverted the whole gospel logic and now you're not going to get anywhere. Instead, go to the gospel, Christian. Go to the gospel. You who would seek a new life in Christ, go to the gospel and begin with the gospel promise, with the indicative of grace. Repent and believe the good news. Cry out to God and ask him to do for you what only he can do. Take my life, Lord Jesus. Take my life and let me live it all for you. Repentance and faith and the changed life that flows from them are divine gifts. And they are yours for the asking today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do as we read in Ezekiel and send your holy breath, your majestic Holy Spirit to blow upon this place and to breathe upon these slain, to bring new life into dead hearts, to cause new creatures to rise in their pew where they sit and to close with Christ and to follow the gospel logic and to believe the promise and receive all of these divine gifts, to receive a flame of faith that burns joyously, eagerly with trust and obedience that pursues authentic repentance and righteousness. We ask for these things today to do for us, O oh Jesus, what you did for Lazarus. Call us out of our graves and let us stand a great army, an army of Christians shoulder to shoulder, marching nobly unto Zion under the banner of Christ our King. Fill us and flood us with your spirit and give us the repentance we crave the repentance you require. Do for us and in us what only you can do. And we will pursue that changed life. We will pursue that relationship with you. And we'll do it in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it.